The scale of the movie's big, but it's intimate. It's, uh, it's personal. Welcome back to Behind the Irishman, where we give you an inside look at Netflix and Martin Scorsese's latest crime drama, The Irishman. I'm your host, Sebastian Maniscalco. In our final episode, we look at the epic scale of production needed to bring this story to the big screen. We met the digital wizards at Industrial Light and Magic, who created a brand new technology to de-age the movie's stars. From location scouting, to set building, to costume design, you're gonna be blown away by the unprecedented scale of this picture. Now, on the last episode, we heard about the de-aging test starring Bobby D. The idea came from this guy. Name is uh, Pablo Hellman and title visual effects supervisor. Now, Pablo's home base is Industrial Light and Magic. They've been the top visual effects studio in the world since George Lucas founded them in 1975. You've seen their work in Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Back to the Future, Harry Potter, and Gangs of New York. Now, for the Irishman, ILM was up against one of their greatest challenges yet, de-aging three of the world's most recognizable faces. The first thing that I thought is that it's going to give the movie context. The same way that you ask a production designer to provide a building that is 1950s or a car or something like or a wardrobe, then you put the visual effects and you put the actors in the right context. Now you get a story because then the audience has that connection with the character. Just from working with Marty, I knew it was going to be a, a very extensive and, uh, and long movie. It was a lot of pressure, but the project was so interesting. With the Goodfellas test, Pablo proved his theory. But that was just a short clip. Now, he had to scale that process up for the entire feature film. The next question is going to be, okay, this looks good, but then how do you actually produce this? And how do you turn this into a production model that actually yeah. supports financially 1,700 shots? Digital de-aging normally begins with capturing the actor's performances in all three dimensions. That means actors are going to wear markers like white dots and ping pong balls on their heads. For De Niro, Pacino, and Pesci, that wasn't in the cards. The first thing is that markerless onset with no helmets, nothing in front of the actors. And they're spanning 40 years. And we're starting with an actor that is already 75 through 78 years old. They're incredible performances. We have captured that performance without interfering with the performances themselves. So we took the technology out of the performance. You ended up with a completely markerless capture. To pull this off, ILM had to develop an all-new camera system. For the capture itself, we had to make sure that we could triangulate the performances, meaning we had three different points of capture, taking a look at you know, the actor performing and taking a look at lighting and textures and coming up with a piece of software that would actually take a look at all the information that these three cameras are capturing and then create geometry that was deformed frame by frame. To keep track of how all the pieces in a scene moved in relation to each other, from lights to props to the actors themselves, 
Pablo had to update an older technology. We started thinking about what is the best way to capture the most amount of data. You start with something and then uh, you build on whatever you have done before. And we knew that witness cameras, when you're doing any kind of 3D creature render, are very important. A witness camera records the action from another angle so the VFX artist could render the scene accurately. If this process was going to work, they needed to record at a much higher resolution. Since we're going to attach it to the center camera, the director camera, why not go with a really high resolution capture for the witness camera? So we went with the film grade camera, which necessitated two camera crews. One for the witness cameras on the left and right camera and then the director camera. Cinematographer Rodrigo Prieto has worked with Marty on Silence and Wolf of Wall Street. His main priority was creating a system that literally didn't get in the way of Marty's vision. So we had to figure out a rig that would allow for any shot that he would imagine to work. But also for the lighting, that was one of my requirements to Pablo was like, listen, uh, I understand, you know, the complication of this technology and how important it is to the movie, but I need to be able to light it like I would light any movie, you know, and be able to be free. So normally on a movie with this level of effects, the director would shoot the scene with the lights all the way up to get the most information into the camera as possible, and then relight the scene on the computer after the fact. But this being The Irishman, Scorsese didn't want to mess with the lighting design. Um, that's impossible to do, unless you move to a completely different spectrum that cannot be seen by the human eye. So we started talking to Ari. Ari creates industry-leading digital and film cameras. Maybe the Alexa Minis can be modified so that they could capture infrared light because that is a spectrum that we want to work in. We wanted to make sure that we were generating the right kind of infrared light. So we had to come up with an infrared ring that was put in front of the witness cameras that was bathing the actor in infrared light. The software uh, development went into, okay, let's take the information that comes from the center camera and the cameras, which are infrared, and let's combine all that data into triangulating whatever the actor is doing. Amazing. It's just very simple stuff. I'm gonna need some more experts in here to help explain. My name is John Levin. I'm a layout supervisor at ILM. So in order to have the computer graphics track perfectly with the motion footage, we need to completely reproduce the environment, the position of our actors, the lighting, exactly as it was on set. Otherwise, you're going to notice the faces, the eyes shifting around in the head. You're gonna notice the hairline moving against the face. We wanted to have an exact reproduction of what was on set. And that includes the position of the actors relative to the camera the lights, everyone else. The VFX crew couldn't just rely on the computer to do it all. They had to use even more cameras to check their work. The Sony camcorder that was on set was there as what we called a god cam, where we can see where the lights were, the actors were, and where the actors' feet were relative to the set. Because we really want to make sure we're hyper accurate with where the digital model is relative to the cameras. If we can see where their feet are, then we're not really guessing. 
That doesn't mean they were eyeballing this. So we take an entire LIDAR scan, a laser scan of the set. We find the position of every light so that we know exactly where everything is. To handle all these cameras, they had to build a completely new rig. Enter the three-headed monster. Here's Pablo to tell us about his creation. It was a three-camera rig that was all attached to each other. It, was, it had to be 30 inches wide, no more than that, because the frames of the doors are about 32 <laughs> inches. So we needed 30 inches to go by, by right. the doors. And we had to be flexible enough to move that rig around so that, you know, sometimes the center camera would be, you know, in the center and then there would be a left and right. Or sometimes, uh, because uh, Marty works with a two setup camera, so if I'm talking to you and he's covering us, he'll have complementary lenses. One over there for me and one over here for you. And so those two things, if, I'm, if we're doing uh, Joe Pesci and, uh, and De Niro or, or Pacino's in the middle, then you have six cameras going. Scorsese knows how much extra work goes into keeping all of these cameras going. And I, I wanted often to have two cameras shooting, but part of this new CGI technique involved three lenses on each camera, which was quite a mass uh, of equipment and people on the set and on location. And I had to find my way through them. I'm rather short and I had to get through the crew. <laughs> but it, it was, we can actually shoot in tight rooms and small locations with that camera. Here's cinematographer Rodrigo Prieto. One thing that was very important to me was that Marty would not feel restricted in any way in the way he shot this film because of the technology. I didn't want there to be any sense of, oh, that shot I have in my mind, that's gonna be really complicated because we have these three cameras and all that. Now, when you got this many cameras, you gotta have a lot of people to operate them. Here's John Levin again, the layout supervisor. Martin usually likes to shoot on film. Here we were going digital. He's done that before, but now we have these extra cameras flanking the main camera. Each of those cameras needed its own focus puller. The infrared cameras needed its own crew. Each camera needed its own set of lenses. The lenses needed to match. All the lenses needed to be low in distortion. They needed to be very clean lenses. Optically, each of the IRR cameras had infrared lights mounted to the front of them. They had fans on them, which needed additional heat sinks because they were very hot. You could actually sometimes see heat distortion coming off the infrared cameras in the main camera view, so we needed to keep them cool. None of the actors had ever worked with a contraption like this. So here comes, um, you know, Joe Pesci's coverage, and he looks at the stuff, and there are three cameras looking at him, and there's infrared light coming on him, and he said, where, where am I looking? Where, 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 where is it? He was like lost. The main goal was always to keep the technology out of the actor's way. Marty works like a composer. If you watch him on set, he is literally moving his hands like a conductor, listening to each line be delivered. He is a true artist, a craftsman, and we do not want to get in his way. So we wanted our rig to be as flexible and versatile as possible. After shooting wrapped, Pablo and his team started making their digital models. Then Marty, the last day, you know, turned to me and said, okay, here's my baby. Now, you know, you have it for about 35 weeks and uh, it better be good. 
So the team has a 3D model of everything that has been shot. Now, any digital assets, say like a, a younger version of Pacino's face, could be matched to the real thing. John Levin explains how it works. So we position our digital model right over where the person was in a 3D space. From there, we can apply our digital makeup. What the camera system did was allowed us to triangulate in depth where the actors were. We could triangulate the depth of the face, the depth of the eyebrow, the mouth, everything, and accurately reproduce the scene. Pablo and the team at ILM poured over De Niro, Pacino, and Pesci's past work in order to make their younger selves look believable. We spent about two years researching footage for the three actors, different movies. We created a library for Nero, for Patient, for Pacino, and we cataloged that footage in a specific way, but there were thousands of frames. To accurately de-age the actors, they had to become experts in the physical effects of growing older. My name is Kevin Reuter, and I was the look development supervisor on The Irishman. We studied just the aging process in general. Your muscles relax, the fat in your face shifts, so a lot of times you see a lot of sagging and changes in the skin, its texture, and even your skull underneath changes as you get older. Your eye sockets actually get wider, the area around your mouth and jaw actually kind of shrink, so you end up looking like a larger forehead and a smaller kind of jaw shape a lot of times. What I've learned, and I've been here 22 years, uh, is the human face is one of the biggest challenges of all, right? That's Gretchen Libby, VP of Production at ILM. And so we look at faces all day, and we know anything, if anything is wrong, we can tell, because we're right. experts. So that was the area where we, we knew there were no, would be no margin for error. And, um, and, then, and with these actors and this director, big stakes. When you get so focused, the smallest detail can make the biggest difference. By looking at the performance, you deconstruct the performance so that you realize that he's moving his chin in a specific way in combination with some of the nose and the left eyebrow is moving like differently than the right one. And then you actually put the performance together with these three actors that are masters at what they're doing. And you understand um, you know, how flexible those faces are, and they're so used to also working with film, you know, where the camera is so close to them right. that it's very minimal what they do to convey an emotion. My name is Sonia Contreras. I was supervising a team of artists that was responsible for the facial performance capture of these three iconic actors. The software is called Flux. Uh, the F stands for facial. Lux is for the lighting component of it. With Flux, what we were trying to do is we were trying to capture the facial performance of the actors in order to be able to de-age them through the process of the film. And Flux uses the data from the camera to take the performance from the actors and put that onto the model. And then we deliver that down our pipeline so that it can be lit and rendered. It's basically a simulation engine to create digital masks for the actors. It's a brand new system. The plate is the footage that is shot from the hero camera, the onset camera. So those images that came out of that camera was our main source of information. The digital masks were always based on the actual footage shot on set. We had information about the lighting sources, and so we would use both of those to help us analyze the images and create a 3D model and then de-age the actors that way. This is layout supervisor Douglas Moore. It's about capturing the emotions and capturing the subtle nuances which show up 
a little twitch here, a little wrinkle up in the nose, that there's no way we could actually generate with modeling. It's the sort of thing that we have to capture from the plate footage directly. And that's something that Flux is really able to do, is actually generate a lot of detail directly from the plate. We would take that information and we would use the footage from that, analyze it in our software, and then turn that into a 3D model that would retain all of the subtleties, the movement of the face. That way we would be able to take that information and retarget it to their younger selves. For Marty and his longtime editor, the great Thelma Schoonmacher, the editing process started the same way it always did. Here's ILM's Gretchen Libby again. They make an edit with the guys at their current ages, and then we go in and youthify them. And so Marty and Thelma had watched the movie for so long without our digital faces. It was a big adjustment for them when, they, when right. we started slotting in people at different ages. The actual process itself of showing the director and the editor our work was pretty standard. What was different for them, I think, was seeing their movie one way for so long and then having to adjust and see it another way. A movie of this size and scope presents challenges to every single department. I mean, this movie is so huge. It really would have been incredibly difficult to have done it on my own. That's veteran costume designer Sandy Powell, who worked with Marty on Hugo and Shutter Island. For the Irishman, she had to call in reinforcements. It's really huge. I mean, it needed to have two people just because there are times when I'm with an actor doing a fitting at the same time as Christopher is. And Christopher was the only person I could think of that I could possibly share this job with. Sandy brought in Christopher Peterson, who had worked on Boardwalk Empire and The Departed, to share the load. It's extraordinary because between Bob, Joe, and Al, sort of collectively, it's about 215 costumes, and we had them essentially in place by the time we began shooting, yeah. which is one of the only ways to accomplish the rest of the film and all the other characters to have those touchstones in place. Bob has over 100 changes throughout all of these decades. We did a timeline, we sort of figured out what he was gonna wear, and we took photographs, and we had a board with in, in sequence, in detail, threw it out every year, every outfit that he wears. Yeah, you know, it's very complex. There were many, many different changes. I want the clothes to look lived in. I don't want it to look like they're costumed. It's really difficult because we cover at least three decades. We cover mostly 50s, 60s, and 70s, and then we do a bit of 80s and a bit of 90s. Yeah. But even within those decades, we've got the early 50s and the late 50s, the early 60s and the late 60s. There are differences between all of those, and just Getting your head around it, even though we've been on this for God knows how many months, it's still really difficult to switch between early 60s and early 70s, late 70s, early 50s. On one hand, there are huge differences between the early 50s and the early 60s, but not huge differences between um, the early 50s and the late 50s. So that's where we start. You look at all of the real images, you read all of the information that there is, and of course, there was a lot. I need masses on this one, but you know, the, we were very fortunate, I mean, as any Marty film is, to have Marianne Bauer. Marianne Bauer is Marty's longtime head researcher. Who provided reams and reams of research and photograph after photograph that really helped unlock at least the basic tenets of what we were up to. Any detail uncovered in research was fair game. One thing came up that Hoffa lived in white socks. He never owned a pair of black dress socks. And so that's why you always see him looking sort of awkward with these huge white bits sticking out. And she was like, maybe that's an interesting thing. And then... Yeah, it's something that we wouldn't have picked up on, really, apart from maybe the uh, maybe one photograph that, that we know the way you can see his white socks. But it's good to know that that's what he did. So I think that, great, that's a character point. We will always do that. Marty is a stickler for detail, and he also loves the reference, and he wants to know what was real. 
That's Bob Shaw, production designer. The production designer is in charge of the look and feel of each scene. Tools of the trade are props and set dressing. If there are times when we decide to deviate from what's real, it's with everybody agreeing that that's what we're doing. You know, we have a barber shop. They had powder blue seats in the historical place. So we sent out five barber chairs to be covered in powder blue leather. <laughs> you know? It's all about doing your homework. You know, this was really just following, uh, following the headlines and following the research, as opposed to some kind of master plan and relying heavily on Marion Power, who's been doing research for Marty for a long, long time. Marty wanted to make the world of the Irishman look ordinary. It is everyday life, so it should look like everyday life. To understand that there is no way to be able to tell how something of great import is occurring in history, in a sense, because very often a great deal of it is uh, masked by the banal. On this one, I wasn't as aware of pushing things. It wasn't like, there'll be no red in this film, or we're going to use a lot of this color, or, or certain things like that. That's why he started with saying, it looks like nothing. It's about subtlety. So the Villa de Roma, for example, was one of our stage sets, and there was a long period of time. Uh, and other than changing tablecloths, I think at one point, originally he didn't want to build that location because he said it will never be the same as a real Italian restaurant. You'll never, he kept saying, you can smell the sauce in the floorboards. We kept trying to add more layers of dust. Would never see it on the film, but I think Marty could be reassured to look and see that the air registers, like along the, the ceiling line. We had them sort of spray all this like stuff on it and then blow dust on it. Authenticity is the hardest thing to fake. I gave everybody wrap gifts that were like these canvas bags that said on it, we go to extraordinary lengths to bring you the ordinary Irishman art department. Because, you know, that's the thing. It's, you're supposed to not really notice it. You know, it was just volume. It wasn't, any, it wasn't anything fancy. It was just a lot of everything. I can't even really break it down. I know that we had a kind of astonishing 295 sets and locations. And we probably had at least 20 built stage sets. There was only one person who could have found all these locations. Kip Myers, location manager. Kip worked with Marty on The Departed, Shine a Light, and Vinyl. I was up for the challenge. It was my fourth time, or would it, yeah, my fourth time working with Marty. And so I know his process really well. And so immediately I was like super excited. Kip's partner in crime on this job, his old buddy, Bob Shaw. This uh, film has a lot of very big, elaborate uh, period settings that we only need to see for like half a page. And they just kept, I kept turning the page and it's another one, and it's another one, and it's another one. So it was really the volume of, of work that, that struck me. So it was every single time I'd read, you know, a paragraph of something, it would, it would just be, oh, we, yeah, of course, that's like, we have to show every single piece of what he's talking about. So like one paragraph, you would like dig out four or five locations. Kip and I were driving around for like close to three months before, you know, anybody else even started. We basically covered every borough, all of the counties. I mean, we went as far as we could and even further some days. We were on our own, own road trip. I put like 5,000 miles on my car just scouting and not leaving the New York state. Location scouting is more than just finding an old Italian restaurant or a vintage gas station. When we were scouting, Kip and I, you know, made videos. And, you know, 
and then we actually showed them to Marty, and he would say, well, I think I'm going to do this more. So in that case, long before it was shot, it was scouted that way in order to just see that it was suitable. In The Irishman, the role of Philadelphia is played by New York City. At one point, Bob and I were like, let's go to Philadelphia, and just maybe production has to be in Philly for a week, you know, just to kind of get some authenticity. And we went to Ridgewood, Queens, and we had scouted it, and we saw, we sort of like put two and two photos next to each other, and we saw a few streets in Ridgewood that were almost identical to South Philly, including like the door frame. Bob and I were like, this is a miracle. Because the, there's a big church that sort of centers this neighborhood. It's a historic neighborhood, so there's no new buildings. So then we were like, we're onto something here. If we can kind of find stuff like this, we can keep making this happen. He admits that this isn't like a docudrama, but I would say he is very particular about uh, locations that he knows, like the Copacabana, Umberto's. He gives a little bit of leeway on other things. I mean, he he's so he wants to make sure this is as mo as authentic as possible, and even says, you know, show me, you know, show me what it really looked like, and then we can sort of go from there. One of the biggest challenges was Umberto's. That would be Umberto's Clam House, a Little Italy institution. It's also the place where my character, Crazy Joe Gallo, gets shot down. The real Umberto's is on Mulberry Street. He was very adamant that we go to where it was, which is no longer there. And we kept telling him, like, now Mulberry Street is a tourist nightmare. There's no way we can recreate this particular scene, an assassination, basically on this street and make it look period. And so we finally went a few blocks away to Broom and Orchard. It had the same fire escapes and a similar position on the block. And so we showed him photos. He's like, yeah, I think I could, let me, let me, let's go look at it in person and I'll come. And so whenever he comes to the location, it's also a big deal. And you make sure everyone's quiet. You arrive early, his car pulls up, he gets out. He's wearing a suit and tie normally hands behind his back, looking around very quiet for a few minutes, and you're just sort of waiting for him to approve or disapprove. He's looking around, nodding his head. I think I can make this work. Yeah, this looks right, okay. And then he turns to me, he says, the only thing is, how wide was Mulberry Street? And how wide is Orchard Street? So, well, we can go measure it for you if you'd like. I'm not totally sure. I mean, I know the pictures look very similar, but I can have someone go take a measurement. He's like, if, if it's close, I'll, I'll pick it. But if it's not, I won't, I will have to find a new location. So we go and it's, and of course, Orchard Street is 24 feet and Mulberry is 22 feet. But he made it work because it was only two feet difference. But this is the, and this is a one scene out of hundreds of scenes in this movie that he, like, he really has 100% on each set. It's insane. We took it as a given that, well, we can't show him the Goodfellas Diner. And we never asked him, you know, it's like, do you, do you not want to shoot in that diner? We just assumed that he wouldn't want to. And we were showing him folder, well, how about this diner? And it's like, you know, I can't really do this shot there. And then we showed him another diner. And finally, one day he said, you know, there was a really good diner we shot in Goodfellas. Can we just shoot there? <laughs> and it's like, okay, we assumed that you wouldn't want to go near it. And he's like, well, I'm not going to shoot it the same way again. I guess he was in a meeting with Bob. I wasn't at that meeting. And he said, is a Goodfellas diner still exist? Does it still exist? And we were like, not only does it exist, they renamed it Goodfellas diner. <laughs> and he didn't know that. So we took him there. Well, we called up the people saying like, this is, we didn't tell them what movie it was going to be because we were afraid they would freak out. Brought Marty there. 
This, the woman behind the counter is the same lady. It's the same family. So the woman who looks young in the black and white picture that they have on the up in the diner, she comes, she greets Marty. Do you remember me? And he's like, of course I do. And it was like, they had a moment. And we sat at the booth and then Marty's daughter was with us. That was another really cool thing is that during our small scout, he brought his daughter along. And it really did change the dynamics of his, his enthusiasm. I mean, I can 100% tell you that every frame of that m movie, he had such an impact on, and it could be the smallest scene in a phone booth, and he will have looked photos after photos, gone in person to scout it, which, I mean, nowadays I feel like that, that doesn't even happen as much anymore because the TV is so fast. And this is someone who he really cares about every frame of that movie. We try to cut away the unnecessary and say, just give me the essentials of this place. Now, when you get the essentials, let's make sure it's weathered, make sure it's lived in. We have to create the lived in feeling, you see, and then that takes on its own life, you know. The fact that we were doing something special uh, made it uh, very exciting. That does it for Behind the Irishman. We've taken you back in time and behind the scenes to explore this story's journey from page to screen. Now that you know how this incredible film came to be, go back and watch it again. I'm sure you'll appreciate the cinematic achievement even more the second time around. Behind the Irishman was produced by Netflix with Fanny Coe and Crossroad. Our executive producer is Ray Vada for Netflix. Our executive producer is Patrick Rizzotti for Crossroad. Behind the Irishman was directed by Fanny Cohen, written by Rob Bear, and edited by Nick Bannon. Several interviews were conducted by Craig Bird and coordinated by Banks Ferris and Catherine Hollis. Special thanks to the entire filmmaking team from The Irishman. Thanks to Nightbird Studios in Hollywood, California for additional recording. I'm Sebastian Maniscalco. Thanks for listening. Now go watch the movie. <laughs>